Hi there. Welcome to React DC Radio, a podcast about refugee resettlement. React DC provides compassionate, comprehensive, and cost-effective resettlement assistance for recently arrived refugees. We work with newcomers on the ground level to enable them on a path to self-reliance and integration into their new lives in America. From a newcomer's first steps onto U.S. soil, React DC is there to reassure them that while their journey here was difficult, their resettlement doesn't have to be. We provide nationwide resettlement support for sponsorship and wraparound assistance for refugees, visa holders, and parolees in the D.C. metro area to help newcomers thrive. We value partnerships with nonprofits, businesses, and a core group of community and volunteer members supporting our mission. We're on the ground supporting refugee resettlement and helping refugees prepare to stand on their own. episode, we'll welcome back Aaron Howe, our React Sponsors Program Director, and introduce you to Cynthia Rapsandhu, one of our React Sponsors. Cynthia lives in Farmington, New Mexico. She holds a Master of Theological Studies degree from Boston University with an emphasis on the role of religion and identity in conflict and peace building. After graduate school, Cynthia briefly worked abroad and then returned to Boston to work in higher education in international affairs and Middle East studies. In 2010, she moved to New Mexico, and for the past 11 years, she has taught courses on history and ethics at San Juan College. She also oversaw the Global Studies Program at San Juan College for three years. She has participated in summer faculty research programs at the University of Oxford, Indiana University, and Harvard University. Cynthia enjoys traveling and spending time with her husband and two young daughters. Aaron and Cynthia are here to talk about sponsorship and Cynthia's experience preparing to sponsor through the Sponsor Circle program for Afghans and ultimately participating in the Uniting for Ukraine program. They'll go over the highs and lows of sponsoring, discuss the one thing they wish people knew about sponsorship, and then end with a favorite memory. I'm your host, Devin McEwen. Welcome to the show. Aaron, it was great to have you on on Tuesday. And today we have one of our wonderful sponsors. This is Cynthia. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thank you. How did you learn about Sponsor Circles? So I learned about Sponsor Circles in fall of 2021 when the Afghans were being evacuated from Afghanistan. And so one of my friends, who was also the interim pastor of my church, learned about Sponsor Circles and started checking into whether we could form a Sponsor Circle here in Farmington. At that point in time, we are in a rural town here. And so at that point in time, they were trying to keep the Afghans closer to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so we were told that we weren't eligible to be a Sponsor Circle. But then that changed in January as the need was still there for sponsor circles to assist refugees. And so that's in January was when we actually formed our sponsor circle. Who did you ask to join the effort? Did people come to you or did you have to seek out help? How did that work? Yeah, so it was actually Rebecca. I have to give her credit for forming our initial core group. So Rebecca is from Farmington and has a lot of connections here. And so she started reaching out to friends and contacts that she had that she thought would have an interest and a heart for helping refugees. And so she started just putting the word out and making a list of people that she knew who might be interested in it. And then she asked me and another woman, Marsha, to be the co-coordinators of the sponsor circle. So she sort of got the ball rolling and then turned it over to us to 
to fill out the application and actually form the sponsor circle. And so our initial core group was made up of people from a variety of backgrounds, but all very good hearted people. And so we had a retired real estate agent, a retired school counselor, a handful of people who still work in the schools and social work type positions. We have a retired physician, a semi-retired nurse practitioner, an accountant. And so it was great because the people who came together are, are genuinely good people, but also they brought with them a variety of skill sets and connections to different networks in the community that really added to our access to resources. So tell us a little about the application process. What was the most helpful aspect of the training and preparation? So I think looking back on it now, forming the welcome plan was definitely helpful because it gave us an opportunity to do some research about our community. So, you know, a lot of us hadn't had to access things like Medicaid or low-income resources before. And so we had to do the research of figuring out what resources be available to refugees in our community and how to access those resources and the paperwork and who to contact. So doing that ahead of time was really beneficial because then when the family arrived, we had already done a lot of that legwork of figuring out who we would contact and what resources we had here. And so, you know, at the time it felt like a lot of phone calls and paperwork to fill out, but looking back on it, that was definitely beneficial uh, for us. And also the online meetings we had with Aaron and other sponsor circles that were waiting to be matched or that had already been matched and just hearing their experiences, their concerns, their questions, the things that were going well, just so that we could also think about how those types of situations would impact us if we had families facing those circumstances. What was the most challenging part of pre-arrival preparation? Definitely, I would say the timing for the housing, because we didn't know when we would get a family. And I know that there were a lot of other sponsor circles in the spring that were facing the same dilemma, since housing was such at a premium. And, you know, you just didn't know when you were going to be matched and that you were going to need housing right away and finding the right type of housing. So we secured housing in March. And that was right around the time that phase two was starting for the Afghan resettlement. And so at that point, most Afghans were choosing to go to bigger cities where they already knew people. And so then we had a house and it was furnished and it was ready to go. And we didn't have a family and we didn't know when a family would come or if a family would ever come. And so that I think was probably the most challenging piece was choosing to go ahead and secure that housing, even if we didn't know that we would have a family come. And we didn't have our first family come until the end of May. So we did have housing for about two months before it was used. (laughs) And I'm going to jump in there. And just to clarify, so Cynthia's group initially prepared for an Afghan family. They ended up supporting a Ukrainian family and then more since then. So I would like, Cynthia, could you tell us a little bit about the transition there of getting your mental state from preparing for an Afghan family to Ukrainian family? You kind of got grandfathered in. So was there anything that was kind of bridging that gap, a surprise or you know, just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely, I think that there was uh, during that interim period when we were waiting and when the war in Ukraine started and when the conversations happened with you and the other sponsor circles about, well, what about Ukraine? Can we help Ukrainians? You know, if we have these resources, there was definitely, I think within our initial sponsor circle group, a question of, you know, how do we mentally shift over? Because we've been so much preparing for an Afghan family and they have different needs and different backgrounds and different expectations than maybe a Ukrainian family would. And, but we had a couple months to do that transition. 
transition because again, the war mm-hmm. started around the same time that we secured housing. And then it took a couple of months to actually get you for you announced and up and running. And so we had the time. I think that was good for us to be able to sort of shift over. I remember one of the kind of more funny or interesting cultural shifts was that we had prepared, you know, not to have any pork in the groceries for the Afghan family, assuming we were going to get a Muslim family here. And we had done a lot of research into how to get them halal meat from Albuquerque or how to support them in their cultural meal plans and things. And then when we got the Ukrainian family, they ate a lot of pork. And so um, it was, you know, we had kind of had months to think about how to work around the meat requirements. And then culturally, Ukrainians eat a lot of meat. So it was just kind of one of those little changes that we had to shift over. (laughs) Your community has rallied around your sponsor circle and newcomer families in some pretty amazing ways from what Erin has told us about. Can you tell us about some of the efforts locally? Yeah, it has been really remarkable, truly, to see how our community has come together. We are a small town of about 45,000 people, and we are in a rural corner of New Mexico. So we are the largest town in about a two to three hour radius. And so you wouldn't think that we would be a community that really has the resources or the infrastructure to support immigrants, especially from Europe, because we don't have an established Ukrainian community here or anything. But people really have stepped up, and we just had the second benefit concert. We held a concert back in June that was a fundraiser, and we just had the second concert this past Saturday. And with those two concerts, we raised over $7,000 to support these families. So, And the cost was $10 per person. So people gave more than $10 at the door to get into those concerts. And we've had interviews on the radio and the newspaper, so that's definitely raised awareness in our community, and people have stepped forward with donations. We have secured four houses for these four families that we are supporting. And all four of the landlords are committed to the cause and have offered reduced rent for these families, both for the sponsor circle while we're paying the rent, but also continuing on as the newcomers get jobs and have to pay rent themselves. So affordable housing has been secured and the housing is all in a good location. Some of them are near each other, so they're able to walk to each other's houses. So that's been just amazing to see how the housing has somewhat magically appeared. We had a situation with the fourth family where we weren't sure if they needed housing or not, they were living with extended family here. And so when they finally did tell us, yes, we would like some housing, if you can look for some housing for us, the very next day, my co-coordinator, Marsha, was in the grocery store and ran into one of our other church members. And he's like, hey, how's it going with the Ukrainians? You guys don't need any housing still, do you, by chance? And she said, actually, yes. Just yesterday, we found out that we do need housing. He's like, yeah, I've got a rental property that I haven't rented for the past few years. So, you know, if you guys want to take a look and see if that would work for you. And it was in the same school district that the kids had already registered for school. So it was just these, these amazing little moments where, you know, it's serendipitous that everything just falls into place. The local thrift store has offered to allow the Ukrainians to come get anything that they need for free, clothing, household goods, anything like that. People have donated gift cards to allow them to go shopping. So that way they have some autonomy over, you know, what they're buying for their house and the clothes and that kind of thing. Our local community college, San Juan College, has now offered in-state tuition 
tuition rates for the Ukrainian newcomers. So instead of being international students, which would have to pay the higher tuition, they get in-state tuition, which is much more affordable. People have donated cars to let them use to drive, to run errands. So they're not as dependent on our sponsor circle volunteers to drive them to doctor's appointments and shopping and that kind of thing. We have four churches that are actively involved in supporting these families and several other churches and community groups that have also contributed. In New Mexico, it's been great because all of these newcomers that are you for you are eligible for refugee benefits. So they get Medicaid, food stamps, cash assistance if they have children. So that's been a, a huge blessing because we didn't know that before the first family arrived. We were still waiting to find out if Ukrainians would be eligible for refugee benefits. And so there was a, about a week where <laughs> we were wondering if we were going to have to pay for health care for these families. That was a really good day when we found out. That was a great day. <laughs> Because healthcare is expensive. And so, you know, while we were ready to help people, it's like, oh gosh, you know, and they're in a stressful situation. You know, they've left family and friends behind in Ukraine. So whether it's mental health care or physical needs, we wanted to make sure that they had the resources that they would need. So yeah, I mean, that's just some of the many ways that our community has stepped up and it's just been really remarkable. And that's enabled us to help more families. That's how we were able to expand from one family to four. And it's just because this community has really rallied around these families and shown support for them. We like to keep things realistic though. So we know that not every day is sunshine and daisies. Your first newcomers arrived at the end of May. So you've had some time to exit the honeymoon phase. What has been a challenge to your sponsor circle? Yeah, I mean, we've been we've been working together for about 10 months now. So there have definitely been challenges and ups and downs depending on the day. I think one of the things we didn't foresee when we were putting our welcome plan together, we had in the spring, the college had offered free ESL, ELL classes to the Afghan family. We had a sponsor circle in Bloomfield, New Mexico, about 30 minutes from here. And they were able to enroll at the college for free ELL classes. And so when we put our application together, we fully assumed that that would be in place for any new families that came in as well. And again, our first family arrived at the end of May, so it was right towards the beginning of summer. And so they did not offer ESL classes over the summer. So our first family came in and we didn't have that resource for them right away. But then we were assured it was going to happen in the fall. They were going to hire someone, a new instructor to teach in the fall. And then they've struggled to find someone to fill that position. So the ESL classes, ELL classes just started yesterday at the college. And so I think it's tested everyone's patience. You know, for us, you know, we would love to have easier communication with the newcomers that didn't know English before coming. And so just having those basic phrases and basic concepts in place would have been helpful over the past couple of months, but also for the Ukrainians that really want to communicate as well. They get frustrated. They don't know the language and that they can't communicate and be understood a hundred percent all the time. And so I think that was one of our unforeseen that we thought we had all these pieces in place. And then when that kind of fell through. Fortunately, one of our newcomers was an English teacher in Ukraine. And so we just have had, again, one of these really fortunate coincidences that she was in the first family that came in May. And so she has stepped forward and voluntarily offered English classes twice a week to all of our newcomers. And that has actually been a really great resource, not just for them learning English because she's an excellent teacher, but also for them to get together twice a week, that all the families have a place where they get together and can just meet up 
club at least twice a week. And so it was a challenge, but it also has turned into sort of a benefit as long as we aren't overburdening her too much with the teaching load. And now once again, we do have the classes at the college. So now I think that will be not so much of an issue. I would think that another challenge we faced is more so as we expanded, as we started taking on these additional families, that the volunteer management piece, and as you expand and more people get involved and making sure communication is working well, because it's one thing when the initial core group of 10 people had four months to prepare for a family and to be really familiar with the welcome plan and really familiar with the resources and the paperwork and who does what. But in July, we found out there were two Ukrainian American women here in town that on their own through you for you had sponsored families. So they had filled out the paperwork, brought the families here, and then our sponsor circle sort of got involved to support them with those families. And so that's when we started adding on additional people that didn't have so much lead time to get up to speed with what sponsor circles was and how to help refugees. And so we went through a little bit of a bumpy period, I would say, in the end of July, beginning of August, where there was some confusion and just trying to make sure everyone was on the same page about how we were doing this and what everyone's role was. So I would say that's a challenge. As you start to grow, if you get beyond that five to 10 group of people in a sponsor circle, just making sure everyone is really clear about what their role is so there's not confusion. That brings me to a question, actually, if you don't mind. Sure. Do you think having had the hands-on experience and working with the group you worked with, would there be a magic number? And sponsor circles require a minimum of five. And depending on the situation, some may have more, but that is the minimum. Do you think there is a magic? This is too many. This is perfect. You know, it's hard to say because we've said several times, especially over the past couple of months, that it takes a village. And the fact that our community has come together and so many people have been involved has been fantastic. I think that what's worked for us is that we have some people who we kind of refer to as floaters. I guess I should back up. So when we started to take on additional families, we formed separate welcoming groups for each family. That way it wasn't overburdening to five or 10 people to now have to take care of four families and all all of their issues and all of their transportation. So when we recruited more people, we kind of created these sub teams that would be dedicated. And we gave the families different names, the sunflowers, the daisies, that way we could kind of keep everyone straight. And so we had these different teams, like the sunflower team, the daisy team, and that would be the people that those families would call on if they had a question or if they needed a ride somewhere, that kind of thing. And then there are some of us that are hovering above in the umbrella sort of sponsor circle. And we have one woman, Anne-Marie, who knows how to go and fill out the Medicaid paperwork and all of the state office stuff. So she has done that for all four families. And we have one person who's the retired school counselor, and he's gone into the schools and made connections with the principals, the advisors, the counselors, the teachers for all these kids to make sure that they know that these kids are coming from a war zone, you know, make sure that they have that extra support as needed. They don't speak English as their first language, all of that kind of stuff. And so I think that, you know, it'd be different for each sponsor circle, it'd be different for each community, but I think making use of the resources that people have, the skills that people have, and even if that means using the same person for more than one family, I think is beneficial. So you don't have one family getting a different type of experience or different kind of support than another. But sometimes you just need those bodies too. So, you know, especially with transportation, <laughs> we've been so lucky. We have a lot of retired people involved and they have time. And so, you know, they're not working during the day and having them available and kind of on call to drive someone to a doctor's 
doctor's appointment or to go shopping to pick something up is so helpful. And so they may not be in the trenches necessarily every day with these bigger issues of making sure they have healthcare coverage or that they get to Albuquerque for their biometrics appointment. But just having lots of people available that care and are involved, even if they only drive someone once in a month, I think is really beneficial. So I think it's just striking that balance of knowing who to call on for which tasks and also not turning away help too readily because people want to be involved and you don't want to discourage people from helping. So it's kind of a balance. I think we found it now. I think we're in a good flow right now. But we have over 30 volunteers, I would say, that have been involved as tutors, as drivers, as paperwork doers. We have a whole range of people. If someone is brand new to this whole process of being a sponsor, what would you tell them is an average time commitment for the first few months, you know, before they arrive and after they arrive? You know, because I think some people, when they're looking at their schedules, they might get a little bit overwhelmed. Do you have kind of a ballpark, depending on what their roles are, what a timeline would be realistically for them to be committing to? Sure. So I would say for me, so I'm the coordinator of the overall sponsor circle. So for me, this has almost become a full-time job um, just because of the volunteer management and the paperwork and that kind of thing. And just being on call, I guess I wouldn't say that I'm working, you know, eight hours a day solid, but just the availability in the evenings for meetings, that kind of thing. So I've actually taken a break from my regular job this fall in order to continue helping these families. So, So I would say if you have a coordinator sort of position, and if you have more than one family, it's going to be more of a time commitment. But a lot of our volunteers have very minimal responsibilities. And even for the woman who has volunteered to do the paperwork with Medicaid and that kind of thing, her role kind of fades off after a little while. So that's why she was able to help so many families is because it was one at a time that she would take them to the state office. And so she knows that's her responsibility and her role. She steps in as needed other times. And the same thing to a certain degree with our education person that at the beginning of the school year, he had a lot more time that he was spending connecting with the school administrators. And now it's sort of only as needed if a student's thinking about switching a class or switching schools or that kind of thing. So it's pretty flexible. And I think as long as you have a good team where people can step in and out as needed and cover each other, I think that's the main thing is that you have people who want to help, who have some availability, and they can sort of choose how much time they commit to it. Some of our welcome groups are more structured than others. We have one that actually has a spreadsheet for transportation, that they have a set schedule for that family of when they take them to the grocery store, when they take them shopping. So that way it's all planned in advance because the woman in that family does not speak any English. So it's more important to have that structure in place. Whereas for our families that do speak English or that even have their own cars, then it's more so that they can call if they need some help with something. So it's more flexible. Every newcomer situation is unique. So I'm sure everyone we asked this question would have a different answer to this. But what is something that you wish that you had known before? It's hard looking back so far. I would say, first of all, as far as a challenge is concerned, I wish I would have known the importance of having the work authorization quickly. So when we were preparing for an Afghan family, we were told that they would get their work authorization pretty soon after arrival. And so our primary job would be helping them get English acquisition, but also find a job. And so we had done a lot of prep work on that, sort of thinking through what sorts of jobs they could find here. And so with the Ukrainians, because they didn't come with work authorization in hand, 
and that has sort of delayed their resettlement to a certain degree because they, they can't work. So they're more dependent on us. And I think maybe culturally, or maybe it's just the nature of the families we have, they don't want to be dependent on us. They don't want to be taking charity necessarily. They want to work and support themselves. And so I think both for their morale and their independence, it's been a challenge for them and, and a frustration for them to have to wait for that work authorization to come through. Now we're starting to see some of them do get their work authorization and they are finding jobs. So I think that we're going to come through on the other side of this pretty soon. But just for the past four months of them ready to work, wanting to work and not being able to, I think I wish I would have thought about that some more as we transition from preparation for an Afghan family to the preparation for the Ukrainians. On that note, I think it's important to uh, distinguish Cynthia's group was my first Uniting for Ukraine sponsor circle to welcome a family. And so in a lot of ways, she was the guinea pig. And a very gracious one at that, as we were learning the processes and everything. So as people are coming in now, they're not going to have as long of a wait for that employment authorization. Again, similar to the benefits aspect, where we didn't know in the beginning how it was going to work. Initially, they had to do a paper application that went through the mail and takes much, much longer. Now they are able, I think, was it July, I think is when they shifted to being able to apply online, which is a much quicker process. So some people are seeing more like a six-week turnaround whereas it's like four plus months to do a paper application. And she has families in both categories. So I'm sure it's incredibly frustrating for the earlier ones having to wait longer than the ones that haven't been here as long and are coming through seemingly much faster. Exactly. So our first family applied by mail for their work authorization in June and are still waiting. We reached out to the senator's office, our state senator, to see if there are any calls that can be made to see where that is or to be expedited. And at this point, we're hearing that immigration is so backlogged that there's no strings to pull for them. So they are waiting, but they have watched as the families who came in July and applied online have already received their work authorization and started working. So we have one gentleman who started working about two weeks ago and he came in July and applied for his work authorization in August. So yeah, so it's tough. It feels unfair, right, that they're waiting longer. But we're trusting that it won't take too much longer. Hopefully their documents will come soon. As you've navigated these experiences where you can only know once you know, what is something that you would gift to someone who's never been a sponsor before in terms of maybe a hierarchy of responsibilities when they're looking into taking on a sponsor? So maybe an order of things, you know, housing, jobs, how would you list the hierarchy of importance for getting things laid out for success? I would say housing is one of the most important things. Two families that came through sponsorship and the sponsors had not arranged housing in advance and didn't really have a plan for that when they arrived. And so we helped them find housing. But that intermediate time, I think having the housing ready to go when they arrive so that they can feel secure as soon as they get off the plane and that they're not still in limbo. Some of our families were in limbo as they left Ukraine. They were bouncing around Europe for a few weeks or a couple of months months in very stressful situations. And so I think having housing ready to go for them so that they know they have their own space and can settle in and have some autonomy and some independence from the get-go with the support that they're never alone, that the sponsor circle members and volunteers are there to help them, but that they have a space to decompress. And so I think housing is one of the most important things. And then of course, as soon as they get here, at least in New Mexico, getting all that Medicaid paperwork filled out right away and getting them a 
with doctor's appointments. And, you know, there's kind of a scramble those first couple of weeks of just checking off all the boxes of all the things that need to get done paperwork wise to get them set up here, I think is the second piece. So having housing ready to go so they feel like they're home and they have their own space. And then just trying to get through all that paperwork as quickly as possible while still not overwhelming them because it's a lot of paperwork, especially if they don't speak English. That is really overwhelming, um, the amount of bureaucracy we have in our society. And if we have to have someone translate or use Google Translate to make sure that they're understanding what they're signing in all those documents. And then I think just socially making them feel welcome. So we have tried over the past couple of months to have a monthly potluck or we went apple picking at my friend's house a couple of weeks ago. And so just giving them the opportunity to do some fun things and socialize with other people and meet other people. And here we've tried to really form this Ukrainian community for them. We don't have one. We had a handful of Ukrainian Americans before they got here. So just trying to give them the opportunity to get together and to meet with us too. And to know that we're not just here to help them with business type things. I always feel like I'm the paperwork person. So at one point, Kate, one of our newcomers said to me, you know, you can just come over and have tea with us too. It doesn't always have to be about filling out a form. <laughs> but I didn't want to, you know, invade their space if they wanted to have some downtime. So I think being there for them as friends too. And now they are our friends. Like they've been here for several months. And so I can say, you know, it's not that we are just helping them out of responsibility or duty, but I think genuinely trying to be there from them as friends is important. How are the kids doing in school? I think pretty well. There's definitely a range of experiences. Our youngest child is nine and the oldest is 16. So we have a range of ages from elementary up through high school. And again, as it is with all children, different personality types, different levels of confidence, different levels of English knowledge. And we have had some instances of bullying. I mean, this is just unfortunately what happens in middle schools and high schools sometimes. And so we're working through that. And I think over all the younger ones are more confident or maybe younger kids are just more accepting typically than as you get the teenage years and kids become a little more insecure not so much the Ukrainian kids but the, the bullying right so that the American kids kind of take out their insecurities on someone else but I think that the good thing is is that our community is pretty small we don't have necessarily a, like I said a big immigrant population or international population but we do have a diverse population our community borders the Navajo Nation and a few other Native American reservations and we also have a pretty large Hispanic population. And so I think that there is an awareness, especially on the part of the teachers and staff at the schools of welcoming diversity. I know to go with those struggles, there's some positives too. What are some highlights that you'd like to share? Yes. So, so many good things. I mean, I think just how incredibly kind and positive and hardworking and confident our families are, the individuals in our families are that have come here. You know, I feel like if I were coming from a war zone and had to leave my house, I would probably want to be shut down for a little while and not be around people. But that's not the case with these families. They've been incredibly outgoing and reaching out for opportunities and for assistance and exploring all their options. And so I think that has just been really inspiring to all of us to see their resilience and, and it's just been a joy to work with them. I think as a community, this common cause has really brought people together. And I've spoken about this before that coming out of the pandemic or the past couple of years when there's been so much division and people separated and unable to get together, this sponsor circle initiative and in helping refugees has really brought our community together. And I'm meeting people I've never met before. I've lived in this town for 12 years and I'm meeting new people and people are working 
working together regardless of any kind of affiliation or identity. Everyone's coming together to help these families. And so, you know, we've seen people step up and volunteer to tutor, to drive people, to take the families to different social events. I just got an email yesterday that tickets have been donated to this week's community choir concert and someone has donated tickets for all the Ukrainians to attend for free. So I think it's just this incredible generosity and just positivity that's coming out of this. And their presence here is just making our community better. I'm hoping we're helping them. It seems like we're helping them, but they're also helping us and they're just becoming really valuable members of our community. So that's what I would take away as the overall highlight is that the challenges pale in comparison to how wonderful it's been to have them here. All right, we'll get final notes from you both. Erin, do you have anything that you'd like to add before we wrap up? She's got me a little emotional thinking about (laughs) Cynthia, if there was anything that you could tell someone that was thinking about building a sponsor circle and sponsoring a family, what would you want them to know? So many things. I would say don't be afraid to reach out to people in your community because you'll be surprised at how generous everyone will be. And it doesn't hurt to ask. We have one woman, the retired real estate agent, who even before we had a family was telling everyone she knew her book club, all her social groups about what was happening. A family is coming. A refugee family is coming. And people would just pull out $100 bills and give them to her. Oh, here, have this. Give this to them when they get here or put it into your fund to help them. So every little bit helps. And so you don't need to have, you know, everyone quit their jobs to help these families. It's really just reaching out to everyone and seeing what skills or resources resources they have. You know, if they have a job, I just talked to a gentleman yesterday who wants to offer a job to one of our newcomers. And so it doesn't have to just be five or 10 people. I don't think people should feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the responsibility. I mean, it is a big responsibility and we always feel that of, we want to make sure that nothing slips through the cracks, but making sure that everyone you know knows what's going on and just asking them if they have anything that they want to contribute to help. And you'd be surprised because we have been able to do amazing things because of the number of people involved. Like if we had just stuck to five or 10 people, we would not have been able to do what we've done. So I think reaching out for help. I remember one of the women who sponsored a family on her own, one of the Ukrainian American women here in town, she felt called to sponsor a family. And so she found this family online. She didn't know them before, even though she's from Ukraine. And then the reality started setting in for her of gosh, how am I going to do this? Because she does work full time and she has kids and her own responsibilities. And so then someone somehow connected her with me. And so I told her, I was like, oh yes, we have people. We can help you. We can find housing. We can help you navigate the paperwork. And she was so relieved because one person cannot do this alone. So I think that's an important thing to point out for the Uniting for Ukraine program in particular, that it only takes one person to sponsor a family. So anyone can sponsor a family if they know one, but one person cannot do this alone. And so definitely having a good team and feeling confident in reaching out to other people for help. And again, that help can take many forms, but just feeling confident that other people will want to help, I think is is a key takeaway. I'd just like to reiterate, it has been a pleasure to work with Cynthia and her group throughout the process from the long months of waiting to see if we were going to match and then transitioning to Uniting for Ukraine, having you as my guinea pig. It has been a true pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like I've learned so much from you and watching what you all have done as well. So thank you for all of your efforts. 
Thank you. You've been a great resource to us. It's been nice to be able to reach out and know what other groups are doing too, because otherwise you can start to feel like you're isolated if you're just doing it on your own and you might be reinventing the wheel. And so it's really helpful to have Erin and her expertise to bounce ideas off of and that she can reach out to other circles and say, hey, what have you done to your families or have your families experienced these issues? And so it's like it doesn't just take a village. It takes, you know, a nationwide network (laughs) like React DC to make these things possible. To learn more about sponsorship and how you can be a welcomer, please contact Erin's team at reactsponsors at reactdc.org or go to www.reactdc.org forward slash reactsponsors for more information. Links will be posted in the episode description. To help support React DC's efforts, donate now to have an immediate impact in the lives of refugees. Donations support families in immediate need and ensure support for families still to come. React DC Incorporated is a tax-exempt, nonprofit organization under Section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code. Your donation is tax-deductible to the full extent allowed by law. Donation link posted in the episode description. Thank you for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe to hear our next episode. And until then, thank you for your support, and we look forward to broadcasting to you again soon. Thank you.